Untold Stories is an annual conference started in 2019 by Startup Europe Networks and Startup Hungary. We believe founder stories are powerful, and we pride ourselves on having real, no BS conversations to inspire and educate our community. Building off of our offline events, we developed this podcast with TechCamp Global to bring you untold stories from some of the best founders in the region year-round. In each episode, we try to uncover the details and hands-on tactics behind the founders' successes so you can benefit from their years of experience and lessons learned. Our hope is you will make fewer mistakes and find new ways to accelerate your growth. My name is Mary Alcantara, and this is the Untold Stories Podcast. Let's dive in. Ishvan Chanadi is the CEO and founder of Shaper 3D. Shaper 3D is reinventing 3D CAD for the next generation of designers. Shaper prides themselves on innovating in the, not only the product, but the distribution side of manufacturing and design software. Today, we're sitting down with Ishvan to talk about his journey raising from top-tier investors, and to share some exciting new releases planned for this year. Ishvan, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to become an entrepreneur in the first place? Oh, um, <laughs> I, I guess I'm the typical unemployable <laughs> type of entrepreneur. Um, so I, I graduated as a software engineer, um, but before before I graduated, I had another startup, another CAD startup actually 10 years ago that that uh, that failed. And then I joined uh, an enterprise SaaS uh, company uh, where I worked as a software engineer for a few years. And I had to realize that this is really not for me. <laughs> I, uh, I really like the uh, I really like to have a like a much broader perspective. Um, I like to think on higher level than um, than most software engineers, I guess, and uh, and I love software engineering as a discipline. I love to write code. Unfortunately, I don't have to. <laughs> I don't have time to write code anymore. But I love to write code. But but overall, I just you know like I just find the same um, joy, I guess, in 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 building an organization uh, that I found in in building um, building a product or writing code. It's I think in many ways it's. It's a very similar problem, actually. Um, so basically, that's how <laughs> that's how I guess uh, it. It always um, this industry that that we are in, the three design and manufacturing industry. Uh, it always fascinated me. I um, I started to learn three D design or three D CAD when I was a teenager. I was just thirteen years old, and I started to learn coding when I was uh, six years old, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, so I had these two nerdish hobbies <laughs> during my childhood. And I, I and the funny thing is that I was not a typical nerd, right? Like, I mean, I, I love Star Trek, but <laughs> I would never go to a Trekkie event or anything. You're like not that. helping your case here, Ishwan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, so um, so I, I was not not uh, not a typical nerd kid. Um, I, I was doing competitive fencing, for example, and um, but I still I loved technology. I loved building software or writing software. And uh, when the first iPhone came out. Um, I started writing apps with the jailbroken SDK, and uh, that was that was a lot of fun. And when the App Store was launched, um, three days after the launch, my first app was there that we wrote with a friend of mine. 
Um, and I guess these were the three main things that influenced my thinking around Shaper initially. So you started off, so you've always been interested in technology. You were a developer from the age of six, it sounds like, <laughs> and you were working first in the software yeah. company before you had your your previous CAD startup. So no, so I first I had my my own startup. I first first I wrote my first app that made like twenty k uh, US dollars in in two months, and uh, that was actually a great feeling. I still remember it. You know, like we were uh, we were on our second year in the university, so like twenty k for two guys. Yeah, that that's was, huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Like that that was a lot of money for us. So uh, that that you know like that that taught me that. You can actually make money by building software, and uh, then I started my my other cat company, and we worked on it for two years, but we were way too inexperienced, and uh, we were way too naive, and also the world was completely different. By the time I, fundraising was completely different. You couldn't really get proper funding in Europe in general. Like so, if you have if you wanted to build something, you've had to move to to the valley. Well, a lot has changed since then, but <laughs> by the time it was like that. Um, and so that, that startup failed, and then I joined this enterprise SaaS company that that after a few years, you know, I just didn't 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 see myself you know, working at a typical traditional enterprise SaaS company. It was just not not for me. So then you decided to go back to the the startup world and try your hand yeah. a second time. Yeah, it was not that obvious to be honest. So I, um, when I quit, uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do after. Mm, so I, um, I just, um, I just know that I, I, I think I, I was pretty sure that that um, that I want to start a company, but what that was going to be, that was not entirely clear. There were rumors about the uh, the iPad Pro by the time. This was in 2014, um, so basically a year before the iPad Pro was launched. And um, and then I just made a big bet on the iPad Pro. I just thought that uh, that these rumors about the iPad Pro that Apple is going to release a, a Pro grade iPad uh, that will have a stylus, um, it will just mean that Apple is going to completely reposition the iPad from being a content consumption device to become a content creation device. And th that felt like a huge opportunity. It felt like that, that this is something that um, can change consumer behavior, that can change how people think about these, this new platform that by the time was you know, like positioned as something like the, the iPad was basically positioned as, a, as, a, as an e-paper tool, right? Like, right. like, like an e-book, right? Uh, but it was really not, but this is still how people perceived it. And I just thought that this was going to change. And if this was going to change, then then this is a great opportunity to build something completely new, build something from scratch. And CAD was already there in the back of my mind. So, you know, I just combined these two, <laughs> two, uh, two um, interesting topics. And uh, this is how Shaper 3D was born. So your, your first CAD startup failed Partially, I guess, because you ran out of money. So yeah, every startup failed. Yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. classic yes. reason. Yeah, yeah. But was it also in a? Were you trying to do something similar to what Shaper Three D became, or what kind of lessons did you bring with you um, from that experience? Yeah, I, I think our ambition was was quite similar by the time. So basically, we wanted to build a next generation design tool for professional designers. 
but we approach this problem from the uh, from the opposite direction mm, and that's that actually made it really really hard to succeed um, so basically we built a really complex but incredibly sophisticated tool 3d design tool um, that was positioned really to the you know for for the highest end of designers um, I think like like think like you know like maybe there are like a hundred people in the world <laughs> who could have uh, taken advantage of what we built by the time um, which could have been by the way a good strategy but we but that requires a completely different go-to-market strategy mm. um, and we didn't have any go-to-market strategy <laughs> <laughs> we just we just thought that this is an interesting product that we are building so um so with shaper we took the um, literally the opposite direction and uh, we built something that that um, removed the barrier, basically removed the barrier of entry from from Tridican. Something that was accessible to even kind of a an amateur or freelance yeah, kind or of dabbler, like pro prosumer type of customers, probably. And and this is basically so. And and it's really interesting because if you lower the barrier of entry to anything, that can completely change an industry, because then businesses and consumers start to behave differently. So, for example, in the case of Shaper, when you look at the ease of use of our product, you um, probably the, the first thing that, that you think is that this is for beginners, right? But the thing is that by lowering the barrier of entry to 3D design, we, we, uh, we democratized access to 3D, professional 3D CAD, even at large organizations. And it is changing the way how, how these teams are designing. So what happens if, if you don't need a dedicated CAD designer who is using, using the CAD system and that's, that's his or her full-time mm -hmm. job that, <laughs> that, that, um, that, that, he, he, um, that he's using the CAD system, right? So what happens if anyone who has an idea in a, in a design and manufacturing company can actually make a professional industrial grade 3d model of it and that's that's super interesting that 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 is opening up a lot of new opportunities so so shaper 3d was basically taking advantage of you kind of had a hunch that this ipad pro was going to be a thing and so yeah. you were kind of it was the right timing and also the the different approach that was you know what made you i think successful you know, focusing on lowering the barriers to entry rather than designing a super, you know, complex product for only the top tier of users. What can you tell us about kind of the evolution of the product since then? Because mm. so much has changed even in the past, yeah. you know, five years, you know, thinking about when the first iPad Pro was launched till now. How has that, yeah, how has that inf informed your kind of product development strategy? Yeah, just a disclaimer, I don't think that we are successful yet. We are definitely on track, but we are not yet successful. Um, that I think that's that's super important. Well, you've been featured a few times on the App Store, and you won the Design Award from Apple. So that's true, but I don't think that's the best metric to measure success. But <laughs> indeed, it's a start. And yeah, and we even won an Apple Design Award last Congratulations. year. Congratulations! Yeah, cool. that's awesome. Thank you very much. We are super proud of that. Um, but yeah, so so the product. How did the product evolve over the last seven years or over the last five years, actually? Um, that's a good question because I think that uh, Shaper is one of those extremely rare companies that that are going in the same direction since the very beginning. And we haven't really pivoted since 2016 or 2015. We, 
we um, when the iPad Pro was launched, we decided that that we are going to build this 3D CAD system um, for for professional designers, primarily for the iPad, uh, and we will focus on 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 these new generation tablets that have you know like touch screens and and uh, and have a stylus and have and now they have a keyboard and a mouse. So we thought that this is going to be the future, that these the desktop platforms and the tablet platforms are going to converge. And in 2015, that was really a bold statement. Like still everybody thought of iPads as, as toys, mm -hmm. right? And uh, there weren't any signs that this was going to change. But we made a big bet on this. <laughs> and apparently this, this, that was a very good decision because now it's it's super clear, right? Like Microsoft has been going in this direction for quite a while with the Microsoft Surface devices and, and the majority of new Windows-based devices are sold with a touchscreen and with a stylus. So that's that's amazing. And the, I, and the iPad and, and the Mac are quite clearly getting closer and closer to each other every year. Uh, so now it's clear that this is the direction where, where the uh, world of personal computing is heading. And we just doubled down on this. And and if I had to summarize what we've been doing in the last five years, I think the, the best way to, uh, to think of Shaper is that we spend a lot of time and effort on thinking about how the world has changed in the last 30 years when the current market leader CAD systems were designed. And we are thinking what has changed since then. And we are trying to figure out that how these changes enable us to build something that is a much better fit for the needs of, of 2021. Because clearly traditional CAD systems are not bad or anything. They are great, they are, but they were designed for the needs of a completely different world. Because since the 1990s, literally everything has changed, right? the kind of computers that we are using has changed. Um, the way how we work, the way how we collaborate has changed. Everything has changed except CAD. And we think that this is a huge opportunity. So we are not trying to reproduce what traditional CAD companies are doing. We are trying to figure out how can we serve our customers better than a traditional CAD system thanks to these changes that that we have seen in the last 30 years. Yeah, that's super interesting. And yeah, everything you're saying is, you know, less about the product and kind of about the market opportunities. And and I'm sure, you know, you're enabling this kind of revolution in this space, like what you're talking about, democratizing how people, you know, the ideas and, you know, anybody can create now this professional model using Shaper 3D. What are kind of, do you have any stories about kind of customer behaviors that you've witnessed changing as a result of using your product? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I can give you two uh are a few really, really good examples from from the uh, two ends of the spectrum. Like uh, on the super high end spectrum, we have we have Fortune 500 companies as customers, Shaper 3D customers, and and uh, and and they are using Shaper exactly how, what I mentioned um, a few minutes ago. That that basically they are democratizing access to 3D CAD inside the company, and that's that's amazing. So they are removing a lot of load from their, their dedicated CAD designers or CAD operators, and they are enabling everyone else who traditionally work, work together with the CAD operator to design in 3D and to, uh, to be a part of the design process and, and, 
and I think this is, this is fascinating because this is an amazing market expansion opportunity. Um, and of course, we, all, we are also seeing some customers, typically smaller customers, who are replacing their traditional CAD systems with cheaper. That's that's like a more traditional use case. But on the other end of the spectrum, where we are opening up 3D CAD for a completely new audience, we we are seeing really amazing success stories. Like uh, there is this um, doctor in Syria, in Damascus, who um, who has designed and built a hospital in Damascus using Shaper 3D because, you know, like after the war, Syria was completely destroyed or it's still being destroyed, unfortunately, and, uh, and uh, they don't have any professional architects in the country anymore. So, uh, so this doctor, uh, they, they got an iPad somehow as a charity and, uh, and he started learning Shaper 3D and he designed an entire hospital. And wow. that hospital was actually built. Um, based on his designs. B- based on his designs, yeah. And, and I, I think this is, this is absolutely amazing. Or, or there is another amazing uh, customer story with, with, uh, with a young designer from Peru who, uh, who designed a new technology for building affordable housing uh, in rural Peru for for the poor, and that's again something that is probably would have never have happened if if, if Shaper wasn't here. So that's and and we are seeing a lot of these use cases where where you know like I think that there are very few startups that have this actual physical connection mm-hmm. to the world. This is something that you typically can have in a in a design and manufacturing <laughs> software company. So uh, so this is something that we find really interesting that how Shaper is actually like physically able to uh, influence the uh, the world around our customers and our users. I, I, I think that's probably one of the most exciting aspects of, of this business. And you, you mentioned this, that you have a, a pretty broad customer base. So you have, you know, kind of on both ends of the spectrum, you know, from yeah. the, you know, amateur kind of freelance users all the way up to Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. How is that to cater to such you know, a diverse array or what do you how do you feel about the challenges or, or benefits of this kind of approach yeah. so f- from the outside these customers seem to be a completely different customer type, personas right? and everything but, yeah. yeah but but on the other hand and and uh, this is quite typical for every cat system every cat system has an extremely horizontal customer base simply because the the connection between these these personas is that all of them are designing for manufacturing and manufacturing is manufacturing <laughs> if you are cnc milling then you are cnc milling of course there are, i mean clearly there are like there is a you know like there's also a spectrum and you need different type of cnc milling for woodworking and for 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 cutting metal but still um, the foundations are quite similar and the required outputs for these manuf- or inputs for these, these manufacturing technologies are are very similar. So basically, if you want to design for manufacturing, you will just need a CAD system. And typically, this is why why CAD systems have an extremely diverse and horizontal customer base. Um, for example, even for for uh, the market leader CAD system that is super like laser focused on mechanical engineering. Uh, as far as I know, only 60% of their customers are mechanical wow. engineers. And the remaining 40% are, they even have architects and the jewelry designers and woodworkers. So um, so this is quite typical in the, in the uh, cat industry. What is not very typical, though, is that 
um, we are definitely able to to monetize not just traditional CAD users, but but a much broader audience than that. And that's something that is that is obviously novel, and th- that's something that that no other CAD company was able to do before. Hmm. We talked about this um, just a bit ago, but um, why don't you share this perspective too about kind of the trends? You know, when you talk to an investor, you know, vertical SaaS used to be yeah. the the dream, and and yeah. now it's kind of more pivoting towards this horizontal SaaS approach that you're just mentioning. Yeah, I, I think I think that that. Um, just like for CAD, even in the in the world of venture capital or in the world of software in general, the world has changed a lot. Um, categories like software categories or SaaS SaaS categories that were a bit overlooked and maybe a bit despised like ten years ago, now they are becoming sexy. Um, one one of them is is what you have mentioned is that that now horizontal SaaS companies are are becoming more and more exciting and we have we have seen quite a few uh, success stories from horizontal SaaS in the last few years um, another one is that um, SMB SaaS so building SaaS for small and medium-sized businesses is 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 becoming cool <laughs> uh, while this was something that was considered to be um, completely unscalable uh, death valley basically yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> exactly like the the saying was that you, sh- you should just go go after enterprise customers as soon as possible and and now this is changing uh, the, the world has changed a bit the uh, the purchasing behavior of businesses and 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 consumers have changed a lot so like even like even consumer SaaS is now a is now category. Actually, uh, one of our investors, um, Nico Wittenborn, he is uh, super bullish on on App Store subscriptions, and this is his investment thesis that he's investing in the best app subscription businesses wow. exclusively because he thinks that that consumer subscriptions are going to be a really really huge business, and and apparently he's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of capitalizing on the whole power of the subscription model in the first place, right? You know, if yes. somebody's just paying for something once, that's not as you know profitable as you know getting them on the hook for a you know monthly recurring revenue. True, and and also subscriptions allow you to. Uh, to provide much more value to the customer. So I think it's overall, it's a win-win. Clearly, you will only have extremely engaged customers. But on the other hand, you will be able to provide value for them in the long term, like on, on a bi-weekly basis or on a monthly basis. And that and that's something that, that uh, previous software business models did not really uh, enable. So tell us about Shapers. Um what's your kind of you know how do you cater to these what's your pricing model basically you have different tiers mm-hmm. based on yeah. the number of you know users in an organization yeah yeah so so um so for for our self service model we have uh we have um we have two subscriptions a business and a standard subscription uh which are 500 and 240 per year uh we also provide monthly uh monthly subscriptions for both tiers and for enterprise customers, those are always custom deals. They always have, you know, like special needs and, and very specific requirements. Um, but basically, this is it. So it's a, it's a recurring subscription. Did you think about being a one-time app purchase at one point? Was that ever part of the strategy? It's it's not very scalable. And um, with add-ons, you know, like using that as like a Trojan horse and then getting yeah. So 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 I I really think that that 
the future for software monetization or not just the future but the present actually and even the past the last five years is really about subscriptions it's uh i think it's really the uh the only way that 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 provides a win-win for both parties for for the sorry software vendor and for the customer as well so let's um, switch gears and talk a little bit about fundraising because mm. you mentioned uh, when you had your first startup, it was really, there just weren't a lot of options out there. Um, but now, obviously, that's that's changed, thankfully. Mm. So that was another kind of timing benefit with Shaper yeah. 3D. Can you tell us a little bit about your fundraising journey? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we started in, in 2015, which was probably the last bad year of of European <laughs> tech fundraising. <laughs> uh, what that, do you mean by that? So that that was basically the last year when, or that that was the first year when things started to heat up in Europe, um, and now it's like crazy hot, right? Uh, even like Sequoia has now a European office, uh, which was, you know, something that was unimaginable until uh, until a few years ago or a couple of years ago. So, um, so yeah, in, in 2015, we raised an angel round that was 50K US dollars. Such rounds don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the, I think it's, it's literally impossible to raise that much because the minimum ticket size is like 500K, I guess. Uh, so it was a very, very different world. And uh, it was a lot of blood, sweat and tears to just get 50K. It was a lot of work, really. It was crazy hard. Uh, it was insanely dilutive compared to um, compared to the, the check size. But, but you didn't really have any options by the time. And, um, and that has completely changed over the last few years. Um, so overall, we raised uh, 12 million until, uh, until today. Um, and, um, and it became easier every year. In 2015, we raised 50K from an angel investor, uh, Joel Weisbart, who, uh, despite that the round was, was dilutive, I think that probably the, uh, it was the, uh, uh, one of our best deals in terms of, uh, investor value add, to be honest, like Joel has been, um, like a true partner during the uh, entire journey uh which is which is rare and he has been incredibly helpful um then we raised 125k from from an austrian investor team speed invest uh they by the time they had uh, a pre-seed uh, arm of their venture fund that was called uh, pioneers ventures and it was a it was a super small fund it was a five million uh, euro fund those kind of funds don't exist anymore yeah. <laughs> as well. <laughs> so fund sizes also uh, grew a lot over the last few years. Um, and basically from that 170 or 180K, uh, we got to our actual seed round in 2018, uh, which was led by uh, Inreach Ventures and Roberto Bonanzinga, uh, who is the founder of Inreach. And uh, we had another, we had a few great investors joining the round, um, Lifeline Ventures and, uh, and uh, former Skyscanner executives. And um, that was a 1.3 million round. And then in 2019, uh, we raised another round, our Series A, it was a small A round. Um, that, was a, that was a pretty, pretty 
hot round in terms of in investor interest. Um, we got like our firm sheet, I don't know, like after four weeks, I think, just after like after we started the process. Why why was it so sexy at the time? Was the product picking up? You had a good traction? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So basically, uh, we, uh, yeah, we started to grow really fast. Um, it took us three years to get the product right and to uh, lay the foundations of the product. I mean, it's not not the easiest thing to build a CAD system. It's uh, it's really extremely hard. And um, but but finally, in 2018, we fixed the basics, and the, the product was still quite small, and and still it was still quite basic. But at least it it was able to do what it did really well, uh, which was very little, but well, at least that was that was solid. And uh, so, we, so the product started to take off. We fixed a few things in our uh, distribution as well, and then we started growing really, really fast. And uh, yeah, that that clearly helped a lot. Um, and then just after four weeks, uh, when we launched our uh, fundraising process, we got our first we got our first uh, term sheet, and you know, it's always the first term sheet that is the hardest to get once you have the first one <laughs> uh it's much easier to get the get the second and third and uh 25th <laughs> and <laughs> and um and then um a couple of years later um early uh, early last year or mid mid last year uh we raised um accidentally we raised <laughs> a convertible loan uh that was a 4.5 4. Uh, million round uh, which was mostly because we wanted to get an EcoBit on board, on board uh, who, who's the investor I mentioned, the this mobile first investor, uh, because he his value add was clearly um, extremely valuable for the company, what he knows and and how how well he understands the industry. That was super valuable. And I forgot to mention that our Series A was led by or co-led by uh, two of the best uh, European early stage investors, Point Nine Capital and Creandum. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, there's so I'm sure there's so much, so much you've learned through this whole process, and and congratulations on getting the attention Thanks. of you know some of these top tier investors. Um, even your perspective and your insights. I mean, you know you're you have the experience you know your assumptions now about how investing work is is different than even how it works locally in the Hungarian ecosystem oh, yeah. but um yeah so how do you how do you accidentally raise on a convertible note can you tell that story a little bit <laughs> yeah so so the, the venture capital market in general is quite hot at the moment and uh there is a lot of capital on the market uh, but there are not too many great companies and uh, so basically the demand supply ratio is is crazy it's uncomparable to anything that we have seen uh, in the last i know like 100 years um and it's it's uh something that makes it much much easier to launch companies and to and to raise funds if you're good <laughs> if you're good that yes and that's the key right so for the top 0.1% of the companies raising funds today it's super easy for the remaining 99.9% is just as hard or maybe even harder. Um, that means that also the deals are becoming more mm -hmm. competitive and, and investors are keen to allocate as much capital in the, in, in the best companies as, as possible. So you can, you can basically negotiate great terms. 
and um, and uh, now we are in a world where where entrepreneurs have a lot of leverage, uh, which was not the case yeah. five years ago, and uh, this is this is why why you are seeing you know like ten million pre-seed rounds, <laughs> pre-product and stuff like that, which is which is quite crazy, uh, and, and and it's something that nobody would have thought I guess until a few years yeah. ago, and so. Yeah, I mean, so you've raised, you said, twelve million altogether so far. How how big of a your time was allocated to this process? I mean, do you feel like fundraising is something that you know you always have to be thinking about and working on, or do you yeah. feel like now, okay, you're funded for a little while, you can kind of take a breather? Yeah, I, I, I would say that exponentially less. Yeah. Time. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the first fifty k, I think it took me. How long? Like a year, maybe? At like ninety percent of your time being <laughs> maybe not ninety percent, but a big chunk. But, you know, like from from the beginning to the end, it it took a lot of time. Um, then the seed round took me six months. Then the <laughs> then the Series A round took me four weeks. Yeah, and and then the convertible just fell in your lap. Happened. Yeah, okay. Yes. So basically. people are just throwing money at you now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. We are. We are going. Uh, Pretty well. So, uh, if you think about Shaper, the most interesting thing about Shaper is that we are, as far as we know, we are the fastest growing cat company in the last thirty years, from the fraction of the funding of other companies that try to do the similar, uh, a, a similar thing. And we are incredibly cash efficient, and uh, and we are growing, growing quite fast uh, in an industry that has not seen disruption for 30 years. Um, so it looks like that that we are onto something. We are onto something that a lot of other companies have tried with, you know, like sometimes with better pedigree or sometimes with, with much more funding, like like mm -hmm. 20 times more funding. And and still it looks like that that we are we, we just hit a nerve. And um and that's that's quite interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. So what are some of the things that you're gonna be spending your hard earned investment capital on this year um so first of all it's always product um we are we are super obsessed with making our customers happy and uh, building a cat system is certainly not for the faint-hearted it's it's uh just if you just consider the depth and breadth of of the features that you have to put into your cat system even to a very basic one it's it's overwhelming and um, so, so we we are still like laser focused on product development. Our headcount is like sixty percent of our headcount is allocated on engineering. Still, this is not very typical, to be honest. In in, in many SaaS companies, so most SaaS companies uh, allocate much less of their resources on on product. We allocate much more than than the typical SaaS company, simply due to the domain that we are in. Um, and of course, sales and marketing uh, is always something that uh, is quite expensive, and um, except for Shaper, <laughs> because <laughs> but, you're cash uh, efficient. <laughs> beca be because because we have very strong word of mouth, uh -huh. and because our distribution model is completely different compared to traditional CAT systems. So traditional CAT systems heavily rely on on reseller networks and channel partners, and um, and that's expensive that to, to build those uh, networks and to uh, maintain those networks. It's expensive. Uh, while Shaper is following uh, low-touch or zero-touch product-led 
distribution approach that is heavily relying on on consumer facing channels um, which is a pretty big innovation in the in the world of b2b software in general um, we are not the only ones who are doing that but we are definitely the only ones who are doing this in the uh, in the cat industry so this this makes us super cash efficient but that doesn't mean that we are not allocating resources on marketing and growth. Of course we are. It's just that the way how we are allocating those resources, it's it's quite different from how other B2B companies are doing it. Um, yeah, so th I, I think that's the second biggest thing that, that we, are, we are spending on. And also we are um, going to geographically expand, um, meaning that we are considering opening... Uh, new offices. We're not yet sure when, especially due to the pandemic. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a bit hard to predict what's going to happen. But um, for example, we have extremely strong, completely organic growth in China. And uh, of course, every Western company or all the Western companies are dreaming about conquering China and building an enormous business here because the market from the outside looks super appealing. But when they try to do it, they usually just hit a wall simply because it's culturally so different um, that usually their products, you know, like there is no demand for, for Western products very often in China because they have their own solution that is a better fit for the Chinese market. Uh, and also distribution is completely different in China. So the cultural barriers are huge. But when you have a product that that is organically taking off, then it's a sign that you should double down on China, and we are seeing exactly that. We we like like China fully organically without investing in in uh, in Chinese marketing or investing very little in Chinese marketing. We have amazing traction there. Um, so that's that's something that we are quite excited about. Um, but uh, but building a business in China is is tough for a Western company. So uh, this is something that we are trying to figure out at the moment what to do with this. Mm. Yeah, so you, you kind of started talking about this a little bit, but we've talked a bit about the product and how you're innovating there. But um, I think it's really an interesting part of your story, how you're innovating on the distribution side too. And, you know, getting this organic growth in China. What can you tell us about kind of what are your best channels or any interesting stories? Like, you know, what maybe was unexpected for you that turned out to be a great channel? Oh, um, I would say all of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, seriously, um, it's uh, it's quite crazy how um, so we 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 experimented a lot early, and um, and basically the things that we have found are quite quite surprising. And uh, and the way how we built this distribution engine is is very much like a consumer distribution engine, but and, and, and this is something that that probably 10 years ago would have been a complete failure. But the thing is that the purchasing behavior of businesses, like the software purchasing behavior of businesses, is changing or, or completely changed. Um, companies prefer to go through a self-service route. Mm -hmm. Companies prefer to evaluate software for themselves without going through a sales process. I mean, this is classic kind of product-led growth, yes, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. So basically we are, and, and product-led growth doesn't mean that you don't need sales. Of course you need, especially for enterprise customers, you, you totally need sales because 
for them it's it's really really hard to buy something i mean the mechanics of buying <laughs> for like serious like 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 you getting have 10 out, approval committees and yeah and, you know, and procurement and yeah blah, exactly yeah. <laughs> exactly it's a complex process so you have to help them with that process but uh but this product-led growth approach allows you to monetize very efficiently a very broad customer base and i think this is part of the reason why why smb SaaS is becoming sexy because because now we have a distribution model for even for SMBs. And and I, I think this is actually comes down to the fact that that millennials and Gen Z are growing up. Like like millennials are now, you know, like soon becoming 40 years old. That's that's great. I'm a millennial. Uh, so that's quite crazy. And uh, and uh, and they are they are becoming a pretty big part of the workforce or the majority of the workforce. And these generations grew up with iPhones in their hands and they grew up with computers in their rooms and, and with PlayStations and, 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 and they just, you know, like they just don't understand why they would, would talk with anyone when it comes to buying software. They just socialize in a way that they, they, they were educated for decades that buying software is through is, is done through you know like steam and <laughs> through right. the app store with a single single tap and and somehow this is the behavior that that you're seeing when it comes to b2b b2b purchases as well um there is this common misconception i think that that b2b buyers are are more rational than than consumer buyers mm. i think that's probably true or maybe true for enterprise businesses or large enterprises but definitely not true for the mid market and and the smb market uh, as, as medium sized businesses very often behave almost completely like consumers yeah i mean that's that's what i was thinking as you were speaking i mean you you have a b2b product that you're kind of marketing in b2c methods right like you're yeah. on instagram like you're going yes. through all of these you know kind yes. of social channels and oh, everything yeah. yeah we have to we have how many 340,000 Instagram followers yeah which insane. is which is which is the uh biggest follower base in the entire industry <laughs> we have just surpassed the uh the biggest cat company <laughs> in terms of Instagram followers yeah so yeah. We, are, we are quite bullish on that and probably their Instagram budget is bigger than our entire marketing budget <laughs> for the year so so that's uh, and the our product team or, or our content team has been doing uh an excellent job with that yeah that's awesome so yeah, let's talk a little bit more about your team. So how many mm. people do you have now? 100. Wow. <laughs> Is everybody here in Hungary? Uh, not at the moment, but <laughs> but yes, like, um, yeah. So uh, so we mostly hired from, from Budapest, but we relocated a lot of people to Budapest. So we, we always hired internationally. Mm -hmm. um, and you brought people here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we also hired a lot of expats who were already here. I think 15% maybe or 20% of our headcount are foreigners, uh, which is great. Um, but that was never really intentional. To be honest, that mm. just—I uh, mean, I mean, staying in Budapest—that was really not completely intentional. I, I th we we were never completely sure uh, how far we can take the company just by being in, in Budapest. But so far, I think it was one of our greatest competitive advantages that that uh, we built this company from the local talent pool. The local the local talent pool is surprisingly great. And it's uh, and and these people, especially the most talented people, uh, don't really want to work in the second tier offices of big international companies. 
so so I think that that local companies have this have this exceptional opportunity to to really you know just just cherry pick the the top zero point one percent, which would be extremely hard in I don't know, like in San Francisco mm-hmm. or Boston. So I think this is this is a huge advantage for for local companies, not for, not just for us, but for 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 any other any other um, tech startup uh, that is here. Um, so we clearly don't want to stay forever um, completely in Budapest. So we're definitely going to need other offices, and and we definitely want to tap into other talent pools. But so far. I've been more than happy with the local talent pool, and 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 I I also had doubts about how hard it is to to relocate someone to Budapest, but it was not that hard actually. Yeah, you brought over a seasoned CMO, right, from this? Yes, yeah, a VP marketing. Yeah, yeah. So our former VP marketing um, is a is an American uh, guy. He was a. Uh, he was the head of marketing at at the uh, biggest incumbent before, and we relocated him from from Boston to uh, to Budapest, which was again something that was a bit unexpected, hmm. I think. Um, yeah, but but apparently the the city is before COVID it was <laughs> amazing, <laughs> right? It, now it's just like any other city, I guess. Um, but but I think there is a lot of potential here. Why was it surprising? I mean, were you you didn't think what were the, your concerns about trying to get somebody over? Hmm. So I didn't have any concerns, but I would say that everybody else did. Um, so the common, common uh, wisdom was that that it's you know like you have to build in a in a so-called tier one city because otherwise you won't be able to relocate talent. And also the there is this saying in in VC circles that the quality of people is higher. In certain locations, I don't really believe in mm. that, but a lot of people do. Um, I think it's just that you have to uh, evaluate talent differently, um, and and we had to figure it out for ourselves how to evaluate talent. So you cannot rely on on hiring for a pedigree, right? You mm-hmm. can't hire someone from Dropbox, or you can't hire someone from from Figma. Uh, you have to um, have to figure out for yourself how to find the and evaluate the best talent. But it's it's definitely not impossible, and I think it's easier than than going into a crazy talent war in in one of those cities, to be honest. And how did you entice this person to come here? I mean, what was I guess you know? It, I'm sure it comes down to the individual, but I, I yeah. agree with you. I think you know. Budapest also as a city has a lot to offer and I think you know I yeah. speaking from experience I know a lot of Americans would be happy to come you yeah. know have a European adventure for a little while I mean oh absolutely absolutely and and I think it's a especially for an American it's a bit exotic right yeah. and uh it, it has this you know like uh, Eastern European smell and <laughs> oh my god I can go to Croatia for a vacation and stuff like that so I think that's that's that sounds great to a lot of people uh, that that certainly helps, but eventually it really just comes down to the person. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so there are there are some uh, people who uh, who love to travel and and uh, love to live anywhere in the world or try out new things. For example, our uh, former VP marketing previously he lived in Japan, uh, and before that he uh, he uh, he lived in Boston. But originally he's from California, so it's something that I think he you know like. He he was quite excited about to to try something new. Yeah, 
Um, but you can find these people. Yeah. It's definitely not impossible. Uh, you just have to uh, have to prepare for a lot of rejections, obviously. But if you're recruiting, you will get a lot of rejections anyway. So you approached him. So you kind of... In that case, this was this, this was this was an exception. Uh -huh. <laughs> so in this case, we actually just posted it, posted a, uh, a job post uh -huh. on our LinkedIn and he applied. <laughs> this was like, so there you go. What? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it was a bit different. But but if you have um, if you have an amazing recruitment team, uh, as we do, <laughs> then, then they are they will be able to find international talent, and of course, like don't get me wrong, I'm not claiming that that Budapest is the number one uh, target location for foreigners, but it's certainly not as bad as most people think. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people tend to get bogged down by the salary differential because, yeah. but but I think increasingly you see this even in the U.S. People are, yeah. and because of COVID too, this yeah. is only accelerating this. People are happy yeah. to move to. A place, you know, where the quality of life oh, yeah. is maybe the same and it's just, you know, happens to be a cheaper sure. location and they're happy sure. to take the pay cut to have, you know, that balance. Of course, of course. I, I think it requires a mindset change, but that's it. It's like yeah. probably people or software engineers in, for example, in North Carolina don't make much more or maybe don't even make more than, than software engineers in Budapest. Yeah. And that's something that, that people had to realize. Of course, it's really, really hard to evaluate the actual value of your of your of your pay. I guess really hard. It's mm -hmm. I don't even think that's it, it's fully comparable, right? Because there are a lot of lot of aspects of this that that cannot be expressed in terms of money. Yeah. But yeah. So anyway, I, it's not impossible to relocate people to Budapest. Facebook and Google just announced their kind of remote policy now yeah. that anybody can apply to be remote, and if they move to a different location, their salary just gets adjusted to that exactly. market rate. So I think exactly. that's yeah. Cool. Um, another topic around the team. So you are famously or infamous, infamously maybe a solo founder. Oh, I am. How yes. how does that how is that intentional? How did that end mm. up? What are kind of maybe the pros and cons <laughs> of this? Yeah. Um, it was definitely not intentional. So it was not like that. I had twenty five amazing applicants for the co-founder <laughs> role, and I rejected all of them. Uh, it just, I don't think that you think like that when you are starting a company, to be honest. Uh, also, there is, you know, I think there's a lot of BS around uh, what it's like to be a solo founder and why it's better to have a co-founder. Yeah, sure. I Like, there were times when I wished for, for a co-founder. That's true. Um, but that's, I think, not something that you want for, you know, like, because... You know, like that that would help you from a business perspective or at least for me it was more like having someone that that I can share the journey with mm -hmm. and uh, and that's hard when you don't have anyone like no one else has the same perspective as the founder and that 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 you know like that makes it makes it sometimes tough when when uh, you know it's it's a roller coaster, right? And when you are going through a, a down phase and you don't have anyone to share with, that's tough, obviously. So I think that's that's the most important uh, thing where a co-founder can help. It sounds like Jot, your first angel, was maybe a little bit playing this role. Or you yeah. said he's very active and hands-on yeah. in the early stages. I, I think he is the closest thing that mm -hmm. I have to a co-founder. 
Um, yeah, but also he's you know, like he has an external perspective, right, not an right. internal one, which is which is a bit different. It's it's very different actually. But that's exactly why it's super helpful because I always have an external eye, um, which is great. Was this a challenge at all in your fundraising process? I mean, clearly no, because you've gotten it several was. rounds. But initially, it was initially, yeah. especially in the in the pre-seed round, it was like it was like you know like oh yeah. God. So <laughs> in uh, in 2015, I think uh, European venture capital was trying to uh, learn a lot from from U.S. venture capital, and and the European venture capital was trying to mimic a lot of things that that U.S. venture capital was doing, but they didn't realize that U.S. venture capital, the way how it works, it was invented for the US for that right. that cultural context for that geographical context for that that context in general right and i think a lot of those were um like a lot of those patterns were learned mm -hmm. by european investors and were applied without actually understanding why those patterns <laughs> were created in the us um and i think that that uh, this 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 was really one of them that you know this was the common wisdom by the time that yeah, if, like, never invest in a in a solo founder, but like you know, now 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 I don't think that's uh, this is an issue to anyone, to be honest. So Shaper three D started off and has been consistently a product, an Apple app, app store product. Can you talk a little bit about your plans to expand to other platforms? Sure. Um, so we have recently launched our Mac product as well. So now Shaper is available on, on Mac and iPad. And we already have uh, Shaper 3D for Windows in the hands of um, 100 beta testers. And very, very soon, it's going to be roll out, rolled out to the first uh, 10,000 people uh, who signed up in the last couple of months. And um, and um, yeah, then, then we are launching it publicly by the end of the year or in Q, early, early Q4 end of Q3. So we are quite excited about that. So um how long has that been in the works? Not that long. So so we have I think one of the most efficient and uh, highest quality native product engineering teams in the world. Uh, I mean seriously I'm I'm very proud of the quality of that team. And um and um, you know like some we, we started to work on that project several times before, but mm -hmm. eventually we just canceled the project. But if we look at the actual start starting point of that project, it took us less than a year wow. um, to build the Windows product. And uh, how big was the team working on that? Um, it was quite, it, or it's quite small. It's uh, around five people, um, but it's not a fair comparison to the. Uh, to the other products because the code base is largely shared between the uh, between the two platforms. Um, at least fifty percent or even more of the code base is shared between the two platforms. And also, when you are porting to a new platform, you don't have to reinvent mm -hmm. everything from scratch. So when you are really just implementing uh, what what you already implemented on another platform, it's it's, uh, it's much easier when than when you are trying to figure out things from scratch. But in terms of now you're going to have to be maintaining the product on two platforms. Is that going to be, you know, double the work in some ways or? No, not no. at all. <laughs> not not even close. So uh, 
Shaper is built in a way that makes it really, really easy or relatively easy to maintain multiple platforms and and uh, building the product for three different platforms definitely doesn't require three times more effort. Maybe like 1.5 times mm-hmm. more effort, but definitely not three times more effort. So no, it's it's not even not even slowing us down because it's a really well, it's it's a it's a process that you can parallelize really well. Okay, well, thanks so much, Ishvan. This has been super informative. Thanks for sharing all the details about your journey and how it's been going. Um, I have one last question for you. What's your we talked a little bit about your advice, you know, when you're doing fundraising, but if yeah. overall you have um, any suggestions for aspiring founders who might be getting into this startup world, what's what's something you can tell them to inspire them on their journey? Um, I think I can't tell them anything <laughs> because I, if I had to tell them something to inspire them, then they are not the right founders. Oh. Um, the ones who who succeed usually are the ones who don't give a crap about what others say. (laughs) So uh, I'm not going to waste their time. Very strong words. Do you have any final messages you want to leave for our audience? Thanks for listening. All right. And check out uh, Shaper 3D for Surface coming this fall. Exactly. Sign up for the Windows beta. I'll be your (laughs) spokesperson. Yeah. (laughs) All right. This was awesome. Thank you so much for your time and good luck to you as you keep crushing it in the world of manufacturing and design software. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when we release new episodes. Tune in next time as we continue to deep dive and uncover more hidden gems in the Untold Stories podcast. Check out our show notes for more resources about the topics we discuss and anything we mentioned during the podcast. Let us know what was your key takeaway from today's episode. And if you found this content useful, please feel free to share it with anyone else you think would benefit from it. 